Hello. A quick reminder before we get on with the episode, we have our summer book club coming up. We're going to be reading Race to the Bottom by Ilyas Nagdi and Asvar Shafi. The provisional date for the book club, which will take place on our Discord, is August the 17th. And Pluto Press have very kindly given us a discount code for book club members, 20% off. So if you want to get access to that and get access to the club, drop me a message or send us an email and we will get back to you. Now, a trailer from our partners at Channel Zero Network, and we'll get on with the show. You're listening to Dissident Island Radio. Live every first and third Friday of the month at 9pm GMT. Check out www.dissidentisland.org for downloads and more. Welcome to 12 Rules for What. My name is Alex and today I'm joined by Aya Dodds, who's a freelance reporter, um, has written for The Independent, Telegraph, Time Magazine, uh, previously a tech reporter covering Silicon Valley and is based in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, specifically Oakland. And we're going to discuss her article um, that came out just at the end of June uh, called How Paranoia of a Trans Rights Became Catnip for QAnon and the Far Right. Hiya, welcome. How are you? Hey, Alex. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, I'm doing well. It is uh, It's uh, in the evening for you. It's 11 a.m. in the morning for me. So just uh, my day is starting nicely. Um, so we, we, we've had a, we've previously had an episode um, discussed queuing on, on the show. And obviously your article it covers a lot more than, really, does cover a lot more than QAnon, but it, it, the focus is there. Um, mm. for, for listeners who didn't hear that episode, who were... But, I like, just, could you just bring them up to speed about what is QAnon? How did it start? Yeah, totally. So, you know, when you write about QAnon uh, as much as I do, which is not even as much as some people write about QAnon, it is a deep and weird field. Uh, you end up having a kind of stock description of it. I usually try to describe it as um, a millenarian movement. Uh, which is to say it believes that we're at a kind of fulcrum point in history where everything is about to change sort of comprehensively, holistically. Uh, I always try to note its end point as well, which is that uh, classically, QAnon wants a military coup to uh, sort of displace the current US government uh, with mass arrests and sometimes with mass executions. And I emphasize that part because when you describe QAnon's beliefs in general, it can sound kind of just more like kookier, and it certainly is kooky, but it can sound sort of kookier and like less harmful and more just kind of like, oh, that's a funny thing than it is, right? Uh, and that end point, that kind of desire for this coup, which is known as the storm, is why I think it's reasonable in some ways to describe it as like a partly fascist movement or, you know, you're an anti-fascist podcast, you have a more constrained definition of uh, a sort of more specific uh, and particular definition of fascism. And it has fascist tendencies, right? Because it wants uh, a military government to take over and eliminate all its political enemies. Yeah, I mean, um, that, that is pretty fascist. I have to admit that's a kind of a fascist. It's goal. quite fascist, you know. That, so that is an are we the baddies moment if you find yourself wanting that, I think. Uh but as for, as for how it started and, and the rest of what it believes, uh, QAnon, is, it's a really weird thing. It is a thing that sounds like something from a William Gibson novel, honestly. Specifically one of the like early noughties, kind of very, very near future, modern day kind of uh, William, Gibson, William Gibson novels, like Pattern Recognition. It basically started with a series of posts uh, by a specific user uh, on the mostly anonymous message board, uh, Aitken, uh, which used to be called 8chan and which grew out of 4chan. And it's basically this kind of anything goes, like very unmoderated message board uh, that for a long time, its previous sort of version, which still exists. I'll wait until that passes. Don't know if you can hear that, but there's a sort of car going past playing music. Um, let me see. I'm going to start with like from like its previous version. 
uh, its previous version, which still exists, 4chan, was sort of historically a centre of internet culture uh, and also a centre of like internet racism and internet sort of uh, edgelordism, I suppose, by which I mean sort of the trollish desire to shock people and always be on the edge of every issue without really having a substantial engagement. And 8chan is kind of effectively when 4chan started to crack down on uh, particular far-right movements, uh, 8chan was spawned, and it's since become a very like specifically far-right focused version of 4chan. There were a series of posts there in 2017, I believe, uh, by somebody calling themselves Q, uh, specifically calling themselves Q Clearance Insider, which is basically a reference to like US government sort of security clearances. As I understand it, Q Clearance is not actually a super high clearance, but whatever. This person was purporting to be a, a government insider who was on the inside of like a, a plot among a secret faction of like the military and the government who were kind of the loyalists to the right and true and good America and were soon going to arrest Hillary Clinton for sort of globe-spanning child sex trafficking ring. And Q kept posting and people sort of started to discuss it more and more. Q was always dropping all of this hints. It became this thing of like, you know, Q is very cryptic in how they speak and how they write. Uh, they refer to present events. They ask a lot of questions in a sort of Socratic way as to, of trying to make their point by asking, what is this? What is that? What do you think, you know, what do you think this? And kind of trying to lead you to a conclusion. Uh, so it's very good, like, cult leader stuff. It's very effective in that way. Uh, and in the early years, QAnon, you know, a movement started to coalesce around this, which is people actually believing that this almost certainly person who is full of shit uh, is actually a secret government insider who actually knows about a secret uh, globe-spanning, uh, you know, it's, it's soon evolved into it's a Satanist uh, paedophile conspiracy, and they harvest uh, children's blood to make drugs. And it has all these sort of uh, ideas re-imported from the Satanic Panic uh, and from previous kind of Satanic conspiracy theories. Also kind of the blood level, right? Um, is kind of just that in some ways. Uh, and it definitely has these kind of anti-Semitic echoes and overtones. Uh, I will say that in the early years when I was first following it, like as a curiosity at the time, it was weirdly optimistic. It was a conspiracy theory characterized by pro-noia, I would say, rather than paranoia, which is like the belief that the delusion that the whole world is conspiring in your favor, right? Because originally it had this idea that like whatever you think is going on in the media, whatever you think is really happening in the news, what's actually happening is that it's all a charade uh, by this secret faction of, you know, military geniuses, which is backing Trump as a sort of avatar of historical change, an av avatar of this coming storm, which became an a kind of idea of general political renewal of we're going to take back America. And it kind of speaks to, um, you know, you did that episode about fascist feelings, right? And there's that idea that like something is deeply wrong with the world. It kind of speaks to that, right? It's like something is deeply wrong with the world. It's a globe-spanning, child-eating, Satanist conspiracy. Uh, and But somebody is acting against it. There is a plan. And so a QAnon slogan became, trust the plan. It's like the insiders, the military, the secret government are already planning to get rid of this. So at first it was kind of like, hey, you don't need to worry. But over time, and perhaps this says something about like what the direction of gravity is in online conspiracy theories and like what prospers online, it became, especially during the pandemic, much more paranoid than pronoid, much more uh, scared and worried and focused on this conspiracy element of like, the world is so terrible in such an all-consuming, totalizing way that it's really hard to feel okay about and that I kind of need this uh, peer group who all believe the same thing to feel okay about it. You regularly see this in QAnon communities, people going, I'm so scared. I don't know how to deal with like how bad the world is. Now that I know the truth, which is that the world is run by a globe-spanning Satanist child-eating conspiracy, like I don't know how to deal with that. It's I, I can't stop thinking about it. Um, and it's sort of, it, it's weirdly similar to what you will hear from people who are really worried about climate change or really worried about like the Republican party uh, and sort of where it's going in the USA. Or on the right, people who are not QAnon people but are worried about like, the ascendancy of sort of liberal pro-LGBT politics or whatever. Uh, it's that weirdly similar feeling. Say that again. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's this, it's that, it's a weirdly similar feeling. It's just, you know, with a different kind of object. Um, so during the pandemic, it sort of really got supercharged. A lot of people were stuck indoors. The world did seem to be going completely bonkers. And a lot of people found community through this movement. Uh, and there came to be much more of an element of 
kind of digital volunteerism, effectively. There came to be much more of an idea of like, you need to do something. These secret insiders actually want you to do something. And funnily enough, for what is effectively a kind of religious sect uh, or a kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to know what to call it, but it is kind of religious in character. It's kind of a religion. It's kind of a movement. It's kind of a subculture. What it also is, is like an interpretive community. You know, it is about scrutinizing the news agenda, as many conspiracies are, scrutinizing the news agenda and looking through all these Q posts and figuring out like how they all fit together, what's going on, and sort of crowdsourcing like a religious canon uh, in real time and competitively with different kind of influencers really standing or falling within this movement on how uh, persuasive they're able to be in how they assemble all these different elements uh, and symbols and signs and sort of trace elements of randomness. Uh, from across the news, news agenda into some sort of like weird story that fits with the Q drops and refers back to the original scripture uh, and all of this stuff. And everybody is in sort of incentivized and encouraged to help with this, right? The, you're supposed to quote unquote, do your own research, which often means this same thing of like patching together, not random, but sort of dis disconnected right, things from across the news agenda into a sort of religious uh, exegesis, right? Uh, which is also highly Christian in character. I think it's important to note, like so many QAnon people are uh, Christians, especially evangelical Christians. And there's so much reference within QAnon and by sort of high, high profile QAnon influences uh, to God and the Lord and to specifically Christian uh, religious ideas that there is probably an argument, and I'm not an expert on like comparative religion, but it seems to me there is an argument for considering it a particularly weird denomination of Christianity, right? A bit like Christian science, which has this whole set of other ideas that just, aren't really in the Bible and are kind of kind of their own thing, but it's still linked to the original religion. It is like that level of Christian, right? Yeah, I think, and I think that ties into what we're going to go into later about the evangelical right in America. Um, we, we've, we've talked about before about how, unlike previous big conspiracies, like I suppose 9-11 was an inside job or the Kennedy assassinations or these kind of things, uh, which are kind of at their heart anti-authoritarian, you know, they're, they're set against power. QAnon is kind of, like you said, an authoritarian conspiracy theory in which the, the good guys are the US government instead of the bad guys, which is, 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 is somewhat unique. Of course, mm, that, absolutely. That, that authoritarian government was kind of manifested, as you said, in the avatar of, of Trump. And, you know, what was really interesting after Trump's loss was the kind of, you know, the steal the vote thing, and then actually on the on inaugur inauguration, Trump's going to reveal himself as a true president and anoint himself king, and then that didn't happen. And then, you know, January 6th was this big deal that was going to be the culmination, and that didn't happen. And suddenly, a lot of these people, in the middle of the pandemic as well, were left with, you know, the truth almost of a, of a Biden presidency with a Kamala Harris vice presidency, and Trump left to, you know, tweet out on his, um, sorry, um, post on his Trump social website and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, to, to maybe about, you know, tens of thousands of people rather than millions. How did QAnon um, deal with this, um, like, um, I don't know how to say it, complete refutation of their what they thought was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's when prophecy fails, right? It's that, that, that this, is this, this is a famous 1950s book about an anthropologist or by an anthropologist who's sort of embedded within a 1950s UFO cult uh, in the USA and was there uh, and was interviewing people and so forth as their UFO failed to turn up and take them away and then failed to turn up a second time. Uh, and I had this really weird experience back on January the 20th uh, of have, you know being inside all of these uh, Telegram channels and Facebook groups and various QAnon channels and watching this watching a similar thing watching a prophecy fail in real time uh, and it's interesting what counts as a failed prophecy and what doesn't because q's predictions have almost never come true over the years uh they just repeatedly have been falsified uh however you know there's often there's a genre of um maybe we could call it QAnon uh, apologism of theory crafting which is like oh uh actually the q's prediction has come true but like it's in a hidden secret way, and this is just a feint, and if you look closely at the news agenda, you can see that actually the thing that Q said has become true, but in a, in a different way. Uh, th that all kind of just broke down on January the 20th specifically, because Biden became inaugurated, and I was watching the inauguration, and I was also watching all these Telegram channels and QAnon groups pop off, and people just really not knowing what the fuck to do about it, not knowing how to interpret this. You had a lot of people saying, 
this is all like a front, this is a performance. You can see that this is computer generated, this isn't really happening. You had a sort of, uh, at the time, quite popular sub-conspiracy theory, which was that uh, Biden has only become president of a sort of false shadow US, which is not the real US. The real US is actually a separate thing, which has been ongoing. And like these two split off in like 1858 or some year in the 19th century. Uh, and sort of, so Biden's only become head of this like fake one and the real one, Trump is behind the scenes. I absolutely love this, um, you know, kind of freedom of the land, sovereign citizen, but applied to a whole country. I really like, there's two US's and the real US, you know, Trump's in charge. Very good. Yeah, it's wild. And it, and it's really fascinating as well, because it is like, I don't know, sovereign, sovereign on the land stuff, sovereign citizen stuff, sorry, for, uh, and Freeman on the land stuff is like, it's sort of this weird belief in magic, right? It's this belief that like law is magic. And if you secretly know the right words, and you know the secret law, then you can get one over on everything and authority can't touch you. And it's like, that's not how power works. And that's not how law works, right? Like the power comes first. It's the fundamental misunderstanding about how the state functions and how it, you know, the use of law to exert power. It's not like there's, there's no cheat codes that you can just say, yeah, like you said, abracadabra, and then you can right, absolutely. and stuff. And I think it's, you, you, it's QAnon in general is this sort of, it's a similar misunderstanding of like how conspiracies work and what conspiracy looks like. And all conspiracy theories are like, this is not just QAnon, but it's this idea that like, the signs have to be out there and you have to be able to see them and you have to be able to read them. And the idea that like elites are always kind of giving the game away with all of these like secret nods and secret signs uh, for reasons that sometimes are specified and sometimes are not really clear. It's this idea that like, rather than, you know, either the cons either there's probably not much evidence of the conspiracy or there's like evidence, but they're denying it or, you know, you or it isn't there, right? It's this idea that by interpreting the news agenda correctly, you can discern the truth, which is a really bizarre and hidden truth. Um, but yeah, so, you know, before January the 20th, 2021, my stock description of QAnon would have to include Donald Trump. It would have to say, you know, it sees Donald Trump as like a messiah figure. I don't really have that in my stock description of QAnon anymore. And that's because it's kind of really splintered and moved a little bit away from Trump. Not completely, but it's definitely kind of broadened and diffused. Uh, a lot of people immediately after the inauguration sort of declared that QAnon had always been a PSYOP. Uh, it'd been nonsense. It'd been a plant. The CIA had done it, whatever. Kind of went off on their own. And you can see why, because there's a strain of QAnon, which is a kind of like quietism. It's like kind of a quietist movement, because this idea of like trust the plan is like, I don't know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of uh, political movements, radical political movements that say, only you can stop this. You must fight. We are facing overwhelming odds and you have to do everything you can. Maybe you have to do violence. Maybe you don't. Depends on the movement and the person. Uh, but QAnon was kind of also like, don't worry. The white hats, as they're called, have this in hand, uh, which led a lot of people uh, on the far right or, you know, former QAnon people to be like, this was always just... Uh, a sort of false idea planted in our movement to try and defang us and prevent, like, the, it was like, the truth is what QAnon said, like, the conspiracy is real, but QAnon was actually this kind of, like, double fake-out, double bluff thing. Um, and so, you know, you saw at that time, like, neo-Nazis, especially re recruiting people by trying to say, hey, like, sorry you fell for all this QAnon stuff, but you were right that something is fundamentally wrong with the world and there's a globe-spanning conspiracy. It is the Jews. Uh, and so you saw a lot of, like, recruitment attempts. Uh, many people did remain in QAnon, and so it's now really splinted, splintered and uh, broadened out. Uh, there's still this basic idea of like pedophile elites uh, ruling the world and of the storm coming, uh, but it, it's a bit of a Tower of Babel thing, right? Like there was uh, there was one thing, uh, and then it fell apart, and then you have all these different competing sort of uh, successor movements. Uh, for a long time, also the prophet Q was silent. Q has just returned. Yeah, I was going to say they started to drop again. They all, they all yeah, exactly. Which like, and there's, you know, you may have discussed in the podcast before, but there are um, certainly, there's certainly some uh, evidence that, you know, this is not the same person who has always been posting as Q, uh, that this is something that's kind of basically at very least coordinated with the people who own and run the site, Aiken, because they have the ability to, basically how people identify Q is by like a unique identifying number, which is the only way you can have persistent identify, uh, identity at all on Aiken. It's not some, uh, not a place where you have like a username and account uh, you can have what's called a trip code, right? And it's like uh, the whole trip code systems changed like just before Q returned. But then Q also still had the same trip code, which should not have been true because they should have all been reset. So there's, you know, there's some evidence that this is not the same Q as we have seen before. Uh, unclear. But either way, 
Uh, it's not yet clear like how that will affect things, uh, but certainly in the in Q's absence during the, the sort of long silence of the prophet, uh, you saw all of these kind of conspiracy theory entrepreneurs who basically had media businesses, small independent media businesses, but media businesses sometimes with merchandising, sometimes with like advertising, uh, sometimes that's how they're making money. Uh, they had been a big linchpin of QAnon and uh, interpreting QAnon's theories and, and Q's words for uh, the bulk of the movement. They all went off in their own directions. Uh, so you had this like whole offshoot uh, with an influencer known as Negative 48, who was like promoting this idea that uh, John F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy Jr. were going to reappear in Dallas. And that was like a bit more like a tr sort of traditional cult than this weird like networked online movement, because that was like, oh, cut ties with your families, like spend loads of money to travel to Dallas. You need to be there when JFK returns. Uh, that was very much like that original UFO occult from the book. Uh, when prophecy fails, right? It was like these thing. This thing is going to come and save us. Oh, on a specific day. Oh wait, shit. Um, oh, this and this kind of flags up like how important it is to see QAnon as less as a unified, coherent movement uh, and more of this like very diffuse interpretive community. And in a way, the real core of QAnon is like not even so much a specific belief uh, as the mode of interpretation, right? And this sort of like furious hermeneutic activity of seeing signs everywhere and doing your own research and there always being a boom revelation, you know, this is going to destroy the opposing narrative uh, always just around the corner. And I think that's interesting as well, because you see that kind of idea across the political spectrum outside of QAnon, right? Like the QAnon mode of interpreting the news it, the time was, it's less common now, but like during the Trump era, there was a whole genre of like kind of quote unquote resistance uh, media entrepreneurs who the, there was always something around the corner that was going to destroy the Trump administration. And in a similar way, it was like you could see all the signs and you could see all the symbols and you could interpret like the movements of attorney generals and courts. And it was a similar kind of thing, right? Of like a weird, in I don't know, enforced passivity or kind of uh, like learned helplessness where it's like this whole system is breaking down. Ah, but if I study these symbols closely enough, I'm sure there is a part of the system which makes perfect sense and is going to, uh, deliver what I hope it does. The, the, the fragmentation is, is interesting and it's a similar thing to what happened when the alt-right fell apart as well, um, when Trump mm. started to reject them and after Charlottesville in 2017 when things started to fall apart as well. One of those fragments of QAnon, however, is something that um, researchers in America have come to term T-anon. What is T-anon and, and how has it, it kind of, how has it grown in the, in the post-Trump uh, QAnon culture? Yeah, so TNON is a term coined by uh, an activist and researcher uh, called Lee Lavelli, uh, who uh, co-runs an organization called Health Liberation Now. Uh, and they kind of basically uh, track and organize against anti-trans misinformation and also things like conversion therapy uh, and sort of conversion therapists and conversion providers uh, for trans people specifically. And this is not, that's not something that's sort of tackled in this piece, but that's a big part of what Health Lib Now do. Uh, and basically... Lee's idea of Tianon, it basically is a term denoting an intersection of like fairly traditional anti-trans kind of tropes and arguments. I mean, I say traditional, but we're talking about dating back to like, I don't know, the late noughties here, right? Uh, you know, for me, that for me, that feels like a long time in transphobia because it changes so often. But, um, you know, it's. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, and, you know, when, when I was younger, I used to, like, read a lot of, um, when I was trying to convince myself that, like, it must be bad to be transgender, uh, because if that, uh, and therefore, I didn't have to worry about whether I might be transgender, I would, like, read a lot of these kind of radical feminist uh, blogs, and uh, they were blogs. They were on, you know, Blogger or um, Blogspot or whatnot, right? Uh, if they weren't on social media in this way. Uh, so... Yeah, it's this kind of a set of fairly uh, traditional anti-trans tropes and arguments, uh, generally about the idea that like transness is a kind of social contagion, uh, which is to say it is like it's a sort of delusion that is spread socially between people rather than like a thing that is true about you, whether you whether or not you want it to be or not. Uh, it is a uh, so it's an intersection of that with uh, a very like conspiratorial version of this, uh, where it's like trans rights are a secret plot by shadowy elites, uh, and a focus on, uh, and sometimes an obsession with, the, the idea that this is a plot against children specifically. Um, so for uh, Lee, for Lee, it's not like TNON, the intersection with QAnon is actually kind of more about like, it is QAnon-like, 
as I understand it, like TNON, there are there is some actual crossover with actual QAnon, right? But a lot of these people that Lee designates as part of TNON, it's more like, oh, these people are going QAnon. They are becoming QAnon-like, which is to say they are framing their issue as we must protect the children from this shadowy elite that is trying to prey on the children with a big, horrible secret plot, right? Um, and for Lee, this is like, it's also specifically about a kind of agglomeration of like different political and cultural tendencies and movements that have come together around the issue of trans people, trans rights, and especially like trans medical care for children. Uh, you've got like right-wing evangelicals, you've got kind of radical feminists, you've got the far right proper, which is to say they're not like tremendously religious. Uh, they're quite profane often. Uh, you have got like alternative health and wellness communities even. Uh, and there's a increasing crossover, Lee argues, and you know, I've seen, I think the evidence for this is decent and I've seen uh, a lot of it myself, uh, between all of these communities around the very conspiratorial idea of opposing gender transition services for trans kids, right? Um, and which often leans towards claims that resemble white supremacist conspiracy theories about Jewish people. Uh, there's this idea which kind of doesn't prim doesn't kind of originally come from, uh, but was very much, very strongly promoted by and popularized by a woman called Jennifer Bielek, who uh, I think is still part of uh, these radical environmentalist group, Deep Green Resistance. And she in the in like 2012, uh, around that time, there was a kind of big blow up between Deep Green Resistance and a bunch of other uh, kind of radical environmentalist groups in the Pacific Northwest. Deep Green Resistance was very uh, transphobic. It's kind of institutionally transphobic. It's leaders. I mean, a lot of people quit the movement, so it was split, but its leaders were sort of like, you know, opposed gender transition to the idea of being natural, to the idea of, um, you know, having natural bodies and a, a natural relationship with the world and uh, sort of frame transition as this big sort of, uh, delusion of detaching yourself from your body and uh, detaching yourself from what's real, right? Uh, and a lot of uh, other radical environmentalist groups kind of froze them out over this. Uh, and by Bilek's own admission, um, by her own description, uh, this led her to go like, wait, what? how come everybody is freezing us out over this issue? Like, where did this come from? Why is this so powerful? Like, why are we being censored by everybody all at once? It can't possibly be that uh, people in the radical environmentalist movement in general uh, are generally like socially liberal and generally supportive of trans rights. It must be that there is something more sinister going on. Uh, and so there were already claims- The description of, of malign influence when there is none is like a very common feature of, of a conspiratorial mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it kind of basically led to her. She, there were a bunch of claims uh, that were often being made at the time by various uh, radical feminist groups uh, uh, that were kind of, yeah, kind of touched on this idea of like, oh, the trans rights movement uh, and trans culture in general and the phenomena, phenomenon of gender transition and particularly the kind of larger numbers of people we see now transitioning and being openly transgender actually are some kind of front for a sort of shadowy like medical corporation agenda, an agenda that seeks to medicalize more people to get children uh, hooked on a lifetime of, you know, hormone pills and surgery uh, and seeks to effectively this kind of, I mean, it's quite similar to a fairly orthodox left-wing idea about capitalism, which is that like, it's always seeking to create new markets where previously they weren't markets, right? It's kind of that idea applied to gender and gender transition. And so Bilek really helped popularize this idea of there's these specific uh, millionaires or billionaires. Uh, she often refers to uh, wrongly people who are only millionaires as billionaires, which I think gives you an idea of like how, um, you know, how much about the aesthetics of them being billionaires this is, right? Uh, and this was really influential. This was influential among kind of British gender critical people who are generally coming from a feminist perspective and often are kind of at least uh, at least sort of social democrat or like center left in the rest of their politics. Uh, it became incredibly popular among the far right because most of the uh, millionaires and or billionaires that we're talking about here are, uh, are happen to be Jewish. Uh, and so of course, like, you know, there was a far right uh, group that just kind of ripped off Jennifer Billick's, uh, one of Jennifer Billick's articles and replaced every instance of like, uh, just replaced a bunch of words with the word Jews, right? And just flagged up constantly the fact that she was talking about these people who were Jewish. Uh, so, you know, in Lee's view, basically, Lee's argument and Health Lib Now's argument is that this kind of idea that like, oh, there is a group behind this, there is a shadowy agenda behind this, what you see, the trans rights movement, is a sort of astroturfing campaign for a bunch of like biotech engineers, uh, and sometimes to people who are ideologically transhumanist, right, to people who believe that, oh, we, we need to move beyond the human form in some way, technology will allow us to do this, 
Uh, we're already cyborgs in the sense that we use prosthetic limbs, we use computers to aid our memory uh, and aid our communication, we use glasses to see, well, in future we will and we should kind of uh, transcend the limits of the human form. Uh, this is a separate idea to uh, transgender rights and trans life, to be clear. It is an idea that a lot of trans people like end up getting into when they're teenagers and they're disassociating from their bodies and being like, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if you could be in any body and just download yourself into any kind of body and be uploaded into a computer and not have a body, right? Uh, I'm not, I don't think it's really an idea that actually has a tremendous amount of crossover with like trans rights in general, at least uh, trans rights and trans life as pursued by trans people who are no longer trying to disassociate from their body in that way and are no longer seeking a kind of uh, escape hatch for the feelings that they have about their body. Uh, but yeah, the all of this stuff comes together uh, and Lee's contention is that that idea of a shadowy plot is kind of, that's the catnip part, right? And I use catnip, uh, catnip in the headline of my article because, like, it was clear to me that there's a real libidinal kind of uh, emotional attachment to this. This kind of content, content about trans rights, concerns about trans rights and trans people, especially trans children, is very emotionally engaging for people in QAnon, for people in the far right, and clearly for a lot of people who at least start out on the left. Uh, and people who uh, start out in feminism. Uh, it is very, like, connects to something deep in people, and this really connected. It connected with a bunch of different movements, connected a bunch of different people together, uh, and to Lee, this is, like, kind of the glue that helped this crossover come together. I think there's a few, you know, there's a few other components as well, and, and Lee would say that too, but these days you do see increasing crossover between all of these uh, fairly different political groups. You see an, a crossover of evidence, of tropes, of sort of dodgy studies, of like citations of particular news articles or citations of kind of like, I don't know, groups that are really like social conservative lobby groups, but make themselves sound uh, like they are uh, like medical trade groups or groups of doctors. Uh, you see citation of these things, material from these things, constantly going viral in one world and then in another, or something from one of these worlds going viral in another. You see a lot of uh, crossover in protests, um, a lot of, you know, different people from all these different uh, tendencies coming to the same events, uh, coordinating around the same uh, kind of activities and campaigns. Uh, I'd say it's still more frequent that like QAnon and far right people are sharing and adopting uh, gender critical feminist and radical feminist tropes and ideas, but it does happen the other way around and the other way around is more common than it used to be. Well, that's that's a super interesting way to think about it as well like you can you can be a feminist or someone on the left and uh, and officially and you know explicitly disavow foreign politics but when you start um your discourse and your references start sharing the same pool as the far right and your and and, and, and then your spaces become shared by the far right as well there there is some inevitable uh, meshing going on which although you may dis uh, initially be disavow disavowing it brings you closer and closer to um, much more kind of, um, you know, uh, I suppose, common far-right um, ideologies about, around racism, anti-Semitism, etc., etc. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, th I, I think that's true. And I think also it's, it is remarkable, honestly, to see how much opposition to trans rights sometimes seems to come to dominate people's politics. It seems to have a real strong ability to get right into the center of people's politics, of their beliefs about the world, and grab a hold of it, and kind of start pushing out everything else. Why, why you know, do you think that, why do you it's think hard that to say this. Yeah, why, that's why, yeah. really unclear. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I've actually that, thought about a, this too. It's, uh, it's um, yeah, it's, I don't know. I have, I have no answer for it, and, and hence I'm asking the question. No, yeah, I mean, I only, you know, I asked a few people about this and everybody said, well, I don't really have any systematic evidence of this. Like, here's my theory, right? Everybody was kind of speculating. Um, and that's kind of, I don't know. I don't know that we have enough systematic evidence to like, I haven't seen any studies into this. There are a few studies into like the psychological uh, origins of transphobia, which kind of link it to the idea of uh, some people needing more quote unquote closure than others. Some people need the world to be less ambiguous and make more clear sense and have more clear categories than others. And so there's some psychological literature linking transphobia to this need for closure. Uh, and I think you kind of see that in a lot of um, anti-trans activism. You see a lot of kind of categorical thinking, which is like somehow it's going to destroy the whole political project of feminine uh, feminism or destroy the family or destroy the whole of society. If we can't like sufficiently robustly define man versus woman and it's kind of like i don't know uh 
we haven't really ever been able to define those in ways that don't end up with some people who are like, hey, I don't fit here, right? Like we've always struggled to do that. And by and large, when we try to define those things strictly, uh, that tends to be a process of like society imposing those definitions and medical establishments and the law saying, this has to be true. This is legally true, or this is medically true. One of these things has to be true. And people going, well, uh, I'm intersex, or well, I'm transgender, or these various sort of ways in which people fall outside that system. Uh, and authorities going, well, that's too bad, right? Um, the, I don't know, you, this is kind of anecdata, right? But I have, I see a lot of transphobic material. I see a lot of anti-trans material, screenshots and threads, sometimes shared by other people on social media. Uh, that I follow, sometimes, you know, looking into it myself, uh, from kind of very anti-trans spaces, spaces of anti-trans activism, whether they're feminist or kind of hard right wing, like more traditional social conservatism. And you very often see people's belief that this idea that trans rights are a conspiracy, and specifically that they're a conspiracy against children, is in no way restricted to QAnon or even TNON. It is relatively common in modern anti-trans movements it is not that unusual for people to claim or imply that the push to make gender transition easier and to make it easier for children to access both like social transition, which is just like changing a name and, you know, using different pronouns and other people kind of affirming that, uh, or medical transition where you're actually taking hormones or puberty blockers or whatever it may be. It's really common to kind of suggest that that is some form of a front or a Trojan horse for like a paedophile agenda for the idea of like people being able to abuse children because now those children are going to be like more disconnected from their parents or like more gullible or like it's a treatment for their pre-existing mental health issues that are not being treated and so they're becoming more vulnerable to abuse. Like this idea is really not as uh, common as you would, uh, not as uncommon, sorry, as you would hope. Uh, and I, to me, it's kind of part of a really general uh, way in which Ideas of child abuse and the fear of child abuse crop up everywhere now. They crop up in all kinds of movements, in all kinds of contexts. It is a really common place for radical movements to go. Um, in the UK, you know, a while ago, there was this big, um, this big kind of controversy and at the sort of more extreme end of it, like panic, about basically elite paedophile rings. And this followed like the very real uh, conviction and uh, investigation uh, into some high-profile people who appear to have been paedophiles or were found definitely to have been paedophiles who were like part of the British elite. But there are a bunch of so there are a bunch of things that were real there, right? And to a, to a certain extent, we still don't really know how far that went, how many people it included, what it really meant. Like a lot of these people are dead in their historic um, accusations. Uh, but there are other accusations that didn't really pan out. There were like particular figures, particular ways of interpreting this uh, that seemed to uh, sort of ended up not really actually having much evidence. So the evidence was discredited. Uh, that was way back in like, you know, 2010 to 2013, right? You saw it with this. Oh, yeah. You, you... Another um, um, really obvious example is the the, the um, controversy over grooming gangs in certain northern uh, towns, um, which was naturally leapt upon by far-right figures, including Tommy Robinson, and is still a very animating issue on the far-right today. They, just this year, there was a demonstration of around a 1,000 um, far-right people in Telford, led by Tammy Robinson, about, um, about grooming gangs and how, um, how, and, and how this, this situation, which was, you know, there was a very real kind of neglect of working-class girls and, and, and young people in these towns by the police and by social services and all this stuff. Um, but obviously this is being used by um, Robinson and his ilk for, um, to whip up Islamophobia and, and, and racism and, and things like this. Right, yeah, I think that's a great example of like the salience of these kind of uh, accusations of this, uh, of this subject. If we step back a bit and take a wider view, uh, why is transphobia attractive to people? Why is the idea of a trans conspiracy attractive to people? Uh, again, like, this is anecdote, this is speculation, this is, some of this is like, I've lived in a world that is very gendered and I have thoughts and feelings about it from my experience. Uh, but, you know, everybody's a little fucked up about gender, it seems like. And this is what a few people I interviewed for the piece said, like, everybody has a gender and everybody has weird feelings about gender because everybody has to live in a system where gender is sort of really enforced on people in a very restrictive way and where there's very restrictive ideas of like what your gender is permitted to do. Uh, and it kind of seems like everybody has feelings and damage about that, right? 
Um, especially, I mean, for instance, I remember when uh, I was first coming out, um, kind of more generally, I'd been like actively transitioning for a long time, but I was coming out to people that I hadn't seen in a while and just kind of letting them know. Uh, I remember that when I came out to uh, kind of uh, cis men who were my friends, they'd often, we'd often have a little bit of a conversation about like, and how's your gender doing, <laughs> right? Um, sometimes that was prompted by me. Sometimes it would come up completely unprompted um, just from them. And people would often say stuff that made me go, whoa, okay. They'd like say stuff that was quite strong about their feelings about gender and then be like, but you know, what can you do? Or be kind of like, but anyway, it's nothing really. And I'd be like, oh, not like they were secretly trans. I just mean like people would say stuff like ways in which they're uncomfortable with the expectations of masculinity or ways in which they're uncomfortable with like who they were supposed to be um, or how they were supposed to connect with their own emotions. I was like, oh, that's actually quite intense. Like that's a lot. Um, And you see this a lot with kind of gender critical feminists where there's a lot of kind of, you know, people will openly talk about the, uh, as you would expect from a feminist movement, like all of their problems that have been caused to them by patriarchy and by the existence of misogyny uh, and by in some ways the existence of gender as a system. Right. And so I think that that, that may be one reason why transphobia, why anti-trans uh, animus and why anti-trans politics is is kind of attractive to people, is compelling to them, because it hits something that a lot of people are kind of insecure about or have feelings about. Maybe they've processed those feelings. Maybe they haven't. And this is true for, like, conservatives, social conservatives, uh, Christians and evangelicals and such. Like, uh, they certainly have a lot of stuff going on with gender, right? There are very restrictive ideas of uh, what women are supposed to be and what men are supposed to be. And nobody fits these uh, tremendously well. And so when you have a bunch of people who are being sort of designated as uh, by uh, media reports, by your political leaders, whatever, uh, or by your religious leaders increasingly uh, as kind of outcasts or outlaws uh, or waste product or sort of transgressors of the order of gender, um, there's a lot of feelings that can come up in that, right? There's feelings of like, well, I have to deal with this system. Why shouldn't they? Uh, There's feelings of like, I am very strongly devoted to the system. Uh, my protection within this system comes from my outwards and my public sort of, I suppose, support of this system, right? Um, I remember when I was growing up, it was a very, and this mirrors sort of something things that other trans people have said to me, it was always a very tempting and easy way to affirm and conf- and sort of confirm uh, and prove my masculinity and put it beyond doubt uh, among men to do some misogyny or to acquiesce to somebody else's misogyny or to potentially do some transphobia, right? And I think by and large, I resisted it. I wish I could say I always did. That's the weirdness of gender. Uh, but that is a common way that cisgender people affirm and protect their own gender, prevent other cis people from challenging their gender, right? And, you know, I think a lot of trans people have the feeling that cisgender people actually need their gender affirmed and uh, do undertake gender affirming practices and behavior more often than is widely acknowledged, perhaps as often as trans people. There are a lot of things in our culture from the way that women's and men's magazines and media kind of cater to women and men, to the, the, the sort of classic things that people say to each other when courting or when having sex, uh, to the way that men support and talk to each other or women support to, and talk to each other, which is about persuading cis people that their gender is secure and is not going to be challenged and uprooted uh, and attacked by other cis people, right? Uh, and in cultures that are more conservative about sex and gender, transphobia itself can be a gender affirming behavior for cis men and cis women. Uh, if you if you are saying, well, I think this is all nonsense, I don't like these trans people, I don't like these people who uh, step outside this system, you're implicitly sort of framing yourself as a defender and a sort of paragon of that system, right? Uh, in fact, a, a friend of mine the other night talked about, uh, I don't know whether this is their term, but uh, talked about cisphoria, right? Which is specifically, they were referring to like a friend they knew who had, uh, who is a cis man, who at some point had realized they didn't feel like enough of a cis man and they became much more kind of outwardly uh, masculine and much more kind of bro-y, right, basically. And like, that happens to people. People do that. People undertake all kinds of uh, mini gender transitions 
uh, within one gender as cisgender people uh, all the time. And so maybe the answer to the question, why are they so, in so into this is like, well, some cis people are using this to meet the same needs that trans people meet by transitioning. That is very much like speculation and theory, theory crafting of my own, but that is the vibe that I get from some of this stuff. I was watching uh, um, Jordan Peterson recently, um, and, you know, who who is a you know he's he's a kind of a, quite an extreme figure in the mainstream, and yet he is you know he has a, a massive following, and he's he's kind of paid attention by fairly you know you know regular news outlets and you know regular. Um, platforms and whatever it's not you wouldn't put him on the extreme extreme you know this kind of q on the end of, end of it and i was listening to talk about um elliot page and and kind of doctors who do gender uh, transition care and, and things like this and i was struck by how like utterly extreme his rhetoric was and how you know he was talking about butchers as doctors and he was comparing um transitioning kids to um uh, you know, to the Holocaust and to, um, you know, atrocities in World War Two and all this kind of stuff. And I, it, it had me quite shocked because Peterson went from refusing or like in a public refusal to use pronouns in a certain way in accordance with a, in a Canadian law, which is, you know, like a kind of don't tread on me kind of libertarian, I'll say what I want perspective, to calling doctors criminals and calling basically for you know, when, when you invoke the Holocaust, you, you kind of um, implicitly allow any kind of action to stop that thing from happening. You know, the Holocaust is, you know, singularly evil, and therefore this thing is also singularly evil and must we must wage war on it, we must destroy it, etc., etc. How do you think um, the kind of mainstream uh, right uh, interacts with this more conspiracy online culture, far-right culture, when it comes to trans issues? Mm, that is a really good question. It's a question of increasing salience, because I think the answer is kind of the same for trans issues as it is for a lot of different issues, as it is for QAnon conspiracy theories in general, which we're increasingly seeing reflected in the institutional Republican Party. And there are a good number now of QAnon candidates. Famously, there's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has sort of publicly professed uh, QAnon beliefs and is in Congress and is quite a prominent Congress person as well. Uh, you know, the answer for trans rights is kind of the same for all of these things in a way that's quite concerning. Uh, and it's hard to tell, right? It is hard to tell. You cannot know who, what is on whose timeline and exactly what the lines of influence have been. You can only kind of know like the timelines of what people have been publicly saying and what they, uh, you know, trace how certain bits of rhetoric and tropes have moved from place to place. I will say that uh, Jordan Peterson's rhetoric there, that's fairly old school, right? The idea that like, transgender uh, surgeries or sort of gender affirming surgeries um, or sex reassignment surgeries, whatever you want to call them. Like the idea that that's a form of mutilation, uh, that that is comparable to the experiments of Dr. Mengele in Nazi Germany. Uh, that's something that's like been around in anti-trans movements for a long time. Uh, but over the past few years, we've seen this general pattern emerge in politicians interaction with QAnon and far right movements in the U S right. And the pattern is not, a unidirectional one. The pattern is one of a feedback loop with each of these movements, each of these different kind of entities feeding each other. Uh, and so for instance, a really good example of this is Donald Trump and his retweets, right? When Donald Trump was in office uh, and when he was uh, allowed on Twitter, he would very often do this thing of retweeting super extreme content from super extreme groups uh, or retweeting like the most innocuous content from super extreme groups retweeting like things that contain QAnon slogans, uh, retweeting Britain first at one point. Uh, and, you know, what people who monitor these online spaces have told me uh, is that over the course of 2020, those retweets would often galvanize, like QAnon Facebook groups and would galvanize, uh, inject energy into these far-right groups. And the far-right groups would kind of notice that Trump was doing this. And so they would begin to, like, engineer stuff, tweet it at Donald Trump to try and be like, hey, um, you know, Mr. Trump, will you please retweet this and kind of phrase it in a way that, like, maybe would they would hope they hoped would be attractive to him. Uh, at one point, uh, uh, an expert in the USA, uh, Angelo Carasone, who's um, the head of the uh, kind of left-leaning think tank Media Matters, uh, he... I remember tell, t him telling me in 2020 that his staff had like a, basically 
observed QAnon people like using, like kind of having little badges, like gamifying the Trump retweets, right? So almost like notches on your rifle, on your sniper rifle, like being like, Trump has retweeted me three times, four times, five times, like kind of competing to see who could get these Trump retweets. And it made sense for them to compete for that because when Trump retweeted it, he was taking stuff from this huge, like weird sphere, uh, kind of clouded, nebulous land of strange conspiracy theories and of like all these different competing speech entrepreneurs. But then, uh, then he'd sort of send them out to a wider audience. It would meet new people. It would also inject energy back into these communities and they'd rally around it again. Or Trump would say something that like seemed potentially, it might be on a different track, right? That stuff would often then like galvanize and change the discourse within QAnon communities. So if Trump mentioned a particular slogan or a particular group or a particular issue, people would like coalesce around that. So I think that tells you a lot about like how this tends to work now, which is that there's no, it's not like it starts in one place and then it uh, goes in that other direction. It's like there are always people on every side of this, people on the kind of institutional level, uh, people in the chaotic movement level who are kind of watching what the others do uh, and taking what is most interesting to them. In my story, specifically, there are parts of the institutional side that precede the kind of chaotic conspiracist side. Uh, so for instance, uh, in 2017, where, when QAnon was really only just getting started, uh, there was a speech at a conservative Christian organizing conference uh, where somebody said basically, we have had a lot of setbacks lately on trans rights, and this might be because we are attacking trans people. Uh, we are saying this is wrong, this is against God, whatever. Uh, we need to attack trans policies, and we need to look, you know, specifically be like, oh, you know, being trans, whatever, that's your business, but like, you shouldn't be pushing this in schools, or you shouldn't be like pushing this in medical care, you shouldn't be pushing this to children, whatever, right? And if we attack those, uh, policies in that way, we can build a much bigger coalition. And we think there's room for coordination with feminist groups on this, right? We share a lot with some feminist groups on this issue. That's 2017. And that's a very institutional thing. That's people gathered at a conference for like hardcore evangelical activists uh, to strategize how they're going to try and change US politics saying, hey, we should do it this way, right? Um, at the same time, I would say the kind of obsessiveness and the kind of like, you know, fixation uh, and kind of conspiratorial fixation on trans children uh, and on, you know, transgender people being secretly everywhere, celebrities being secretly transgender. There's a lot of that. To me, that started, as far as I can tell, on the conspiracist diffuse movement side, right? And then moved into the institutional sphere. Uh, so it, it's definitely, there's a mix even in this story. There's not always as much distance between these two things as you might think. Uh, so for instance, one big driver of you know, discourse in uh, QAnon communities and such like is this Twitter account called Libs of TikTok, which basically takes kind of seemingly uh, at least clips that read as cringe to conservatives from like uh, LGBT, uh, especially transgender teachers or people on TikTok uh, and increasingly just kind of anywhere, right? And just kind of highlights this as like, look how crazy these people are. Look at what these people are doing. Like, look at these freaks, right? Uh, and then sometimes those people get harassment or get threats of violence or whatever it might be. Uh, Lips of TikTok started as just like some woman's side project, uh, but actually it now seems to be its author's full-time job, and that is reportedly funded by uh, Seth Dillon, who is the owner and CEO of the Babylon Bee, which is a quite like well-established um, sort of conservative Christian satire, sort of like the Christian conservative Christian The Onion, right? Is basically what it is. Um, there's also been a lot of in what's that? Oh, I didn't I didn't know about the Babylon Bee. So oh yeah, so there's, there's, there's a oh, yeah, conservative so Onion now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, you know, which um, uh, Elon Musk has sort of uh, defended its... Uh, he recently had a, a big blow up with Twitter where they uh, sort of were persistently misgendering uh, a transgender person and Twitter asked them to delete the tweet and it became a sort of cause celebrity on the right. Um, so lips of TikTok started at this kind of like, you know, more like in the conspiratorial nonsense uh, movement side of things. Uh, but it is has been adopted, in fact, by like institutional conservatism uh, and is frequently, you know, there's a lot of inspiration and interaction uh, with the spokeswoman to Ron DeSantis. He is the Republican governor of Florida. He's pushing this, what people call the don't say gay bill uh, and sort of a set of basically restrictions on how much and in what ways you can mention sexual orientation and queerness and transness uh, in schools and educational material. Uh, his spokeswoman, you know, has spoken very positively of libs of TikTok uh, and follows them. 
Uh, I think the key thing to remember in how these groups all interact is that like on all sides, everybody is a speech entrepreneur, right? And everybody is a speech entrepreneur uh, operating in a marketplace uh, which is digital and which is defined and controlled by big social media networks and by their algorithms and by the uh, affordances and the tools that they provide to share and consume content. And so if one party sees something doing really well, they will jump on it. Everybody's watching the metrics, watching the reaction, looking at what sticks. That is true for QAnon influencers who are looking at what you know gets traction within their community and then being like, oh, people are interested in this. I'm going to jump on that. That is definitely true for journalists. Like That is how journalism works a lot of the time. It's like, whoa, people are really talking about this thing. We should do something on it. Even if it's not like echoing the same, it may be a debunker or a mythbuster or it may be a kind of oppositional thing. It depends on the outlet and what the issue is. But like, this is definitely something journalists and journalistic institutions do. Uh, and it's absolutely true for politicians, right? Who are always like monitoring what is bubbling up in society uh, that you know they can glom onto and that might be a vote winner for them to glom onto. So I think you know the broader movement gets to road test ideas that politicians then glom onto. When politicians do that, it feeds back into the uh, into kind of the original nebulous movement cloud uh, and kind of energizes that and gives a signal that like, oh, politicians are listening for this. Let's do more of it. So yeah, basically it's it's a cycle. Basically, it's, it's a cycle. We we saw this recently, of course, with the, the the Tory Party leadership election, in which you know, although although trans rights and trans issues was not even in, even for Conservative Party members was not the you know was in the te- top ten, but like very low down. You know, people were t- thinking about the cost of living crisis, war in Ukraine, etc. It was a very animating feature of 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 all the candidates and. You know, some had to like started out their campaign with a kind of disavowal of of their previous support for trans rights and and this kind of thing. Um, and of course, what you're saying comes back to what we've talked about with the kind of swarm influencer dynamic of feeding off the swarm, online swarm, and in some ways directing it, in some ways trying to trying to um, yeah commune with it and like speak for it as well. It seems to me that the kind of reaction against uh, trans rights and the attacks on queer people more generally in America is. It's one part of a, a broader kind of, I suppose, gender reaction or misogynistic reaction. That's a sweeping America. That's, you know, had its most obvious kind of expression in the Supreme Court recently with the you know, repeal of, of Roe versus Wade. And the overturning, I mean, not repeal, it's not a law. Um, and, you know, attacks on abortion rights, attacks on contra- contraception, attacks on, you know, same-sex marriage, which is obviously tied into the queer stuff. Um how do you it seems like a really kind of doomer question in a way but how how, do you see any kind of like positive outcome of this situation how do you think this is going to work out in america there seems like to be like an inevitability that a lot of these things are going to you know the supreme court seems unassailable in in america um how do you think the situation is going to play out in the next few years so okay like I think there are some clear um, good things for supporters of trans rights and supporters of reproductive rights that come from this, uh, from all of this. One of which is we are seeing uh, Democrat-run states in the USA codify uh, and expand access to abortion in ways that they hadn't previously. Uh, And there are sort of more pushes to be like, oh, shit, we can't rely on this court judgment anymore. We actually need to... uh, try and pass laws that say explicitly, you can do this. We need to try to uh, create the ability for people to travel here uh, for abortion care. Uh, and so there are like state, you know, politicians that have been able uh, for a long time to be like, hmm, as long as I just don't speak about this too much, then I won't take the political hit for defending it, but we'll still have the thing. So that's fine. Like now I'm having to defend it. Uh, and on abortion, clearly see that uh, or clearly believe rather because i don't know you know i don't know whether their polling is true i don't know what's true about like what would really be politically effective here but it seems very clear that democrats believe that uh you know going hard on abortion is a vote winner uh, is popular with americans and is worth them doing that does not seem to be the case for trans rights uh as all of this kind of basically child abuse conspiracy nonsense a uh, very intense transphobia uh from the organized right in the usa the idea that Uh, LGBT people are quote-unquote groomers if they have any kind of interaction with children or in any way positively represent uh, the idea of being queer to children. Uh, Democrats, uh, or a lot of Democrats at least, seem to be kind of 
being like, we don't want to rise to this. We don't want to fight this battle. Uh, it's not a battle that we'll win. We'll be fighting on their terms. Uh, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing. This is an issue that pulls well for them, doesn't pull well for us. We should avoid it. Um, and there's been some reporting around this suggesting that this is the this is the strategy uh, deliberately that many Democrats are taking. Uh, and look, like, you know, I'm a journalist, like, I point at problems and go like, wow, look at this. This is wild. Um, so, you know, I, I can't really tell them how to do their jobs. But it, it's not clear to me that that is, that will actually work. Uh, because, you know, it's not clear to me that there will be good consequences from abandoning the field in that way and kind of allowing the right to own this issue. Uh, certainly, maybe that's my bias as a trans person because it's not particularly pleasant to have politicians sort of effectively say implicitly or explicitly, explicitly that your rights are not worth defending. Uh, but, or, you know, often as people do frame your rights as like inherently a distraction from any other political causes that might be important. Uh, but, it, you know, I guess the there's another reason for uh, optimism here, which is that, you know, the case against things just getting worse and worse and become a problem is that in the long term, you know, there are more trans people than there used to be. At least there are more outwardly trans people. We don't know what the true rate of trans people is, like absent repression and so forth. Uh, you know, if you were, if you didn't face any particular pushback for being trans, if it was relatively easy to transition to come out as trans, if there was no problem like of that whatsoever, how many trans people would there be? Or if we lived in some sort of like post-gender society uh, where man and woman are unrelevant categories, would there be fewer trans people? Like these are unanswerable questions, but there are more trans people uh, clearly uh, coming out, coming into themselves, understanding themselves as trans, uh, and also the number uh, and the prominence and our ability to articulate our own stories is also increasing. Uh, there's polling and evidence, and certainly many trans people's life experience suggests that you know the more trans people you know, uh, the less likely you are to oppose their rights. Uh, often cisgender people with close trans friends, family members, partners become defenders of trans rights in part because they sort of see, I think this is quite a common experience for cis like partners or close friends or loved ones of trans people. It's like, oh, I see what this person was like before and I see what this person was like now. And I see how fundamentally aligned uh, this life change often is with greater joy and flourishing and with being able to live a, a greater, more activated life, you know, uh, absent discrimination and so forth, uh, it tends to transform people's life for the better when they transition. Uh, and that has in itself uh, a certain uh, gravity, I suppose, where if you witness that and if you understand it, uh, it is kind of difficult to think that's a bad thing, uh, I think, a lot of the time. So there are arguments that the natural direction uh, of US society is towards greater understanding and tolerance, that there are these kind of like slow demographic factors that are fundamentally in the favor of trans rights. Uh, that said, I think we have to be careful not to just assume that like long-term historical trends will like vindicate one particular side or another. Like Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party in the US have been doing that for years with like changing ethnic demographics. Like, oh, there's gonna be so many more Hispanic people that Democrats are automatically going to win and the Republican Party is gonna have to shift left. And that really happened, hasn't happened, right? And it hasn't really done much good for Democrats. So the contrary case, uh, and unfortunately the rather worrying one is that like, in general, American politics is in a very fractured and difficult place right now. Um, before the election in November, you know, I guess this would be, yeah, like the 1st of November or the 2nd of November, that kind of time, 2020, as a journalist covering the election, I had to sit down with my partner and have a conversation about here's all the things that could happen immediately after the election. These things include terrorist attacks the very outside chance they include kind of low intensity civil conflict. Uh, they include me getting hurt or dying uh, on the job, unlikely, but could happen. Uh, and they include like attacks and uh, sort of violence, political violence here uh, where we live in California. Um, and so we just, you know, we have that conversation and it's not every day that you feel like you need to have that conversation. And there's a great deal of political instability right now. There are a lot of kind of alarm bells uh, for people who study civil conflict, who study civil wars, that have made them alarmed that there is a rising chance of that happening in the USA. Not in a sort of, I imagine you've discussed this before on the show, not in a sort of like two lines of soldiers lining up and shooting at each other kind of way, but in a Northern Ireland, uh, Iraq civil war kind of, there are militias going around doing political violence uh, to particular populations, right? And unfortunately we see uh, plenty of 
inclination towards and sometimes actual, it's actually materially happening, uh, political violence within QAnon. We certainly see transphobic political violence, uh, violence plots against transgender people and threats and uh, all of this sort of stuff are drastically on the rise in the USA. And as the sort of political fabric in the USA frays further, that is not a good thing for trans rights or reproductive rights, right? Because it means that there may be more ability for extreme groups to project their viewpoint through violence uh, and to try and stop uh, the things that they do not like uh, with guns and with training, right? And, you know, I that's not something, I don't know where that goes. I don't know if that has a good ending or a bad ending. When it intersects with stuff like climate change, it starts to be very difficult to, like, predict what might happen to US politics in 20 years and 30 years. It's further stressed by kind of climate crisis. Uh, but at the very least, I think it's likely that this sort of social tension and basically it's zero sum thinking, right? Where like both sides of US politics don't really see each other as part of a shared nation anymore. They see themselves as part of like a specific group of people with a specific way of life that is overwhelmingly under a kind of total threat from the other side. Uh, and if the other side is allowed to seize the reins of power, uh, then they will destroy us. Therefore we, we must destroy them first. That is the kind of thinking that precedes civil conflict. It's the kind of thinking that is just ubiquitous and ordinary in American politics. And so uh, the very best case scenario, I would imagine that, uh, you know, organized violence and uh, threats against transgender people uh, and uh, most likely against, uh, you know, abortion providers uh, and possibly against women who have got abortions or want to get abortions will get worse before they get better. And they might not get better. Uh, I don't have anything more optimistic to say than that, unfortunately. Thank you. <laughs> um, damn. Okay. Let's just end the episode and get out of here because that was a kind of a, a very, uh, very ominous uh, note to end it on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thank, thank you so much for sorry. for coming on and, uh, and and giving us your time and your thoughts and stuff. It was super interesting and you brought up a lot of stuff that wasn't in the article and um, I hadn't thought of and make me think of in new ways as well. Mm, thank you so much for having me on. Where can we where can we follow you? Where's the best place to find your work? Oh yeah, so basically, um, I uh, write for the Independence uh, quite often. Uh, you can often find my work there. You can find some of my work at the Telegraph. Uh, and uh, generally, I am on Twitter. That's probably the best social network uh, to follow me. I am at io dots. That's i for India, o for Oscar, dots Delta, Oscar, Delta, Delta, Sierra. Iodods, all one word. Uh, and uh, I, you know, <laughs> I don't use Twitter to promote work, my work as much as uh, I should do because Twitter is like, hey, would you like to promote your work? Okay, here's a bunch of people harassing you. Here's a bunch of people who are really angry about your previous article. But uh, that is uh, that is the main social network uh, that I am on that is public uh, and where I sort of promote things and have uh, thoughts that do not rise to the level of articles. And so that's the best place to find me on the internet. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much.